Welcome. If you're a woman who has a sense that there's more out there for you, you're in the right place. I'm Whitney Baker, host of the Electric Ideas podcast. Somewhere along the line of working kids, life carried on, but I lost track of my truth. I'm on a reflective journey, and that's what this podcast is all about. Each week, I interview a woman who is lighting her own path and offering others hope. Before our conversation ends, we'll share a reflective question for you to explore. Sometimes all we need is a jolt, a fresh idea, an aha moment that connects us to a sense of possibility. This, my friends, is what I call an electric idea. Welcome back to Electric Ideas. Today's guest is Erica Hornthal. Erica is a licensed clinical professional counselor and board certified dance movement therapist. She's CEO and founder of Chicago Dance Therapy. Ever since graduating with her degree in dance movement therapy and counseling, Erica has worked with thousands of patients from ages three to 107. Known as the therapist who moves you, Erica has truly changed the way people see movement with regard to mental health, moving people toward unlimited potential, greater awareness, and purpose by tapping into their innate body wisdom. In addition to her passion for working with cognitive and movement disorders, neurologic conditions, anxiety, depression, and trauma, Erica is just an advocate in general for dance movement therapy. She created the Dance Therapy Advocate Summit in 2020 in order to spread awareness and inspire and connect individuals and practitioners from all over the world. She's also an author. Her book, which I will be referencing today, is called Body Aware, Rediscover Your Mind-Body Connection, Stop Feeling Stuck, and Improve Your Mental Health with Simple Movement Practices. This was so fun to learn about because this is totally new to me. Let's get into it. Erica, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. My absolute pleasure. So there's not a lot of mainstream awareness about what dance therapy is. And as I was reading your book, I feel like it feels definitely connected from a mind-body space to lots of things I've practiced or read about, yet it's totally distinct. So can you start by telling us what your definition of dance movement therapy is, and maybe as it's helpful, what it's not, just because sometimes I think those distinctions can give us clarity? Yeah, I totally agree. I oftentimes will start with what it's not or the misconceptions as a way to define what it truly is. Traditionally, it's been defined as a form of psychotherapy that focuses on movement to integrate different facets of the individual, like cognition, spirituality, physicality, emotions, the social parts of our lives, really to integrate mind, body, and spirit on a whole. But that's a little elusive. And I find that my own clientele have difficulty understanding that, you know, quote, basic definition. So how I have really begun and and I guess continued to define it for people is bringing on board all of our communication, a bulk of our communication, which mostly is nonverbal. So in dance movement therapy, we're looking at the nonverbal communication and expression that contributes to our mental health. So we're looking at things like movement, body awareness, it can be postures, gestures, any nonverbal expression, most of which ends up being sub or even unconscious movement and using that in the therapeutic relationship. So it's movement coming from the client or the individual 
And the therapist resourcing and referencing their own felt sensations as a guide through the therapeutic process. So it's it's often a marriage between talk therapy and somatic therapy, but the body is in the driver's seat. And when we get to the point of, I don't have anything else to say, oftentimes that's where the work begins. I think it's fascinating. So just help me understand if somebody was just open-minded and wanted to stretch into trying something new in their yeah. healing journey, and they came to you, what would be, I mean, cause I think I know I, I want to make it clear. This isn't for dancers only. So what would right. somebody, well, none of my clients are dancers actually. So <laughs> yeah, right. I, I think it's, it's just interesting because it's tricky with what it's called. I just want people right. to be aware. Right. So give me an idea of where you'd start. What, what's an idea of what someone might experience and physically or what you yeah. would do. I'm realizing that I didn't, I didn't, uh, didn't follow up with the what it's not. So I'll I'll add that and then I'll go into to answering your question. So just to clarify, it's it's not physical therapy. You know, it's not just for dancers. So what it often looks like or why people will come to me to begin with is they've reached a plateau in talk therapy. Or I've had people say, I'm missing something. I feel like I could go deeper, but words aren't getting me there. And while our talk therapists or clinicians have the best of intentions, if they don't have the resources to find that deeper access point, it's never going to be an option in the therapeutic setting. So it can look a lot of different ways. Sometimes it's just recognizing what resistance there is to going into the body. I was talking to someone just yesterday saying, we can't see what is inside our bodies. And so that can feel really scary because we don't know where to go. We, we can't really track where it exists or always what we feel like we can with visual cues. You know, I see something, I hear something. So oftentimes with clients that are hesitant or resistant to go into the body, but know that that's where the work needs to go, we start with the external. We start with the sensations, the sometimes like proprioception, where we feel our body in space. Can we find comfort in our body? How do we bring more comfort to the body in any given moment? It might start with a little bit more of a gesture, a posture, a shift. You know, movement at its very core is a change in position or posture or even perspective. So I know it throws people for a loop when we use the word dance, but dance movement therapy is under the umbrella of creative arts therapies. There's music, art, drama, psychodrama, poetry, dance. And so that's where that word dance comes from. It's really using the expressive art form of dance, which in its most general form is our first form of communication. We all quote dance before we speak, right? Whether it's this dance of life, it's a dance inside the womb, it's a dance of relationship. We have to redefine dance. We kind of have to get out of that pigeonhole of dancing with the stars. So you think you can dance getting up on a stage and performing. We're really looking at it as a very basic, primitive form of expression. And we all have that possibility and that potential. It's it's reconnecting to it. You know, it's looking at that basic mind-body connection and using that to support our mental health, which makes sense when it's explained, but it's so foreign to a lot of us that it feels very out there. <laughs> like, ooh, I don't know if that's for me. Um, thanks. <laughs> 
Mm-hmm. I want I want to actually share one of my favorite excerpts from your beautiful book at the top of the show too, because kind of in tune with what you just said, I think it'll really help listeners sink into what you're all about. You say. Our bodies are not simply instruments of physical strength, endurance, or aesthetics. Our bodies hold infinite wisdom and when resourced can provide new perspective and understanding. So tell us about relearning this connection with our body and also why you think in our today's modern society, why so many of us have lost it. I mean, my first instinct is to say, because most of what we encounter with body is visual, right? In this day and age, most of our communication, right? What we see, how we receive information, even how we share information is visual. I mean, I kind of laugh, but even looking at social media, you know, Instagram used to originally be kind of like a photo, right? Or even a, a, a picture of words. And even that has become video after video after video. So I think in this world, we're so focused on what the body looks like. There are even somatic channels, right? Where people are showing you what the somatic practice looks like. So this idea of exploring our own internal landscape, how it feels to be in my body, what it feels like to do something, how it feels in my body when I have a reaction or a response to something. That's the wisdom that I'm speaking about. I know that that uh, resonates a little differently for everybody. And we might not feel like we have this intuitive, like, oh, my body speaks to me and that's okay. But the truth is we're not even giving ourselves the time and space to listen to the body if it's saying something. And as an example, it can be something as simple as a push or a pull in response to when someone says something that I'm not on board with. So like what comes to mind, something that's in the talk about, people talk about a lot lately seems to be whether or not to force your kids to like hug a family member. So as an example, if we say, oh, Johnny, go hug grandma, there's usually a yes or a no, or there's a sign in the body. Either the body is kind of in this like, okay, I will go do it, right? And we just, we go through the action or you will notice a small hesitation. And then it's usually followed by the, no, I don't want to, or it's nonverbal and there's some tantrum, right? Mm -hmm. So it's these small cues that our body gives us that says, I have a boundary. Am I going to step over it? Am I going to honor it? I feel a certain way about this, or I'm not sure how I feel, but I'm not going to let my mind make all the decisions, right? I'm going to pause long enough that I can say or notice, hmm, something's bubbling under the surface. And so it's, it's not always a pain. It's not as concrete as, ooh, this hurts. So many of us have spent so much time not listening to our body that we don't even recognize these cues. We don't know when we're feeling pushed or pulled in a certain direction we're used to people pleasing or being gaslit or bulldozed. It feels elusive. It feels really challenging. And so my point in the book was really to like go back to the basics and just get people in touch with how they're currently moving, noticing what the landscape of, you know, landscape of their body is before we even dive into emotions and how those are embodied and how we can work through those. Cause that can be very, very overwhelming, especially if we're not used to feeling our way through something. 
that definitely sat with me when I read the book, because it's like when you hear something or someone invites you to do something and you don't know if it's a yes or no, I think if you can tune in, your body will give you that subtle clue. Like even me, I've noticed if I like lean forward or you sometimes lean back just as a cue of like my body knowing before my, my mental part of my body catches up sometimes. Yeah. And I think we're so in touch with our minds at a detriment, right? But like our society really values intellect and thought. I mean, look, we have thought leaders now, you know, it's like, I'm not poo-pooing that. Like I value a lot of thoughts and, and mind and I'm in my mind more than I should be. But I think we're so focused on that, that that's what guides us. And then we feel like, well, that came first because I, I was aware of the thought first and then I go to my body and it's kind of a paradigm shift for a lot of people to think the other way, even though there is so much truth and scientific proof and evidence that suggests that what we think is experienced in our body way before the thought is conscious. We're just not tuned into it. Yes. Yes. Okay. So, you know, back to that, like just kind of making the time and space to listen to our body. I like this phrase that you've adopted. That's kind of like speak your body as an Mm -hmm. alternative to speak your mind. I think something that might be helpful because you do have an interesting perspective on body language, which I'd love you to share, but I think it's an important distinction for people to understand body language and listening to our body's language. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so the the distinction I like to make was mostly for my own like ethical practice because I've had people say, oh, oh, you know, what does this body language mean? I'm not a body language expert. I'd like to say I'm an expert on my own body, but even that's, you know, (laughs) give or take, right? Mm -hmm. But we're all our own experts in our own bodies, you know? So while there are people out there that qualify certain movements, right? Pursed lips can mean I'm lying or, you know, crossed arms can mean I'm feeling defensive. There are general kind of just generalizations, right, for certain emotions and how they're expressed and that universally, socially, globally, they're accepted, right? Fear, sadness, disgust, anger. But when it comes to your body's language, that's how you express yourself. It's how you walk. It's how you gesture. It's how you communicate or your lack of communication. And that's very individualized. You know, my own passive aggressiveness may come off very different than someone else's. The way anger is experienced in my body is going to be different than the way someone else experiences anger. There may be a lot of overlap, you know, oh, I feel it in my hands. Oh, so do I. But that's the, I think the beauty and the interesting part of working with our bodies is that we get to learn this language for a lot of it's like foreign language. And It takes time to not just learn it, but then to become conversational in it. So, you know, for me, very early on, it was connecting to my anxiety. You know, those were the feelings and the sensations that I felt the most in my body. And then kind of exploring like, well, what else do I feel in my body? How do I know when joy is present? How do I know when anger is present? You know, so this idea of speaking your body is not just putting something on and letting your body move, but it's also just that time and space to recognize like, what's my body carrying right now? What does it need to say? 
that could be silent. There could be sounds to it. There could be words to it. But unless we put the focus on it, it often will stay silenced. Oftentimes our, our mind speaks for the body when our body can really speak for itself. I love how you put that because it made me just think about having more of an opening to how my body can be an ally for mm. mental health and mental wellness. And I'm glad you brought up anxiety. You're honest about that. I think that anxiety is rampant, What mm. you know, non-clinical anxiety. So many women, I think there's a gazillion reasons and that's for a different conversation. But can you give us an example of if a woman is experiencing anxiety, what's something positive she can do with her body to help get in touch with that and maybe alleviate it or get awareness of it? Well, I believe when we're connected to or we find ways to connect to our emotions in our bodies, it gives us agency and in a good way, control over the things that feel out of our control. So for so many individuals, you know, anxiety is normal. It actually is a normal experience. And the, the idea of getting rid of our anxiety is not really possible. It's having the ability to manage it, to notice it, to not let it overtake us completely, to work through it. And so anxiety, I, I love this as um, Dr. Russell Kennedy talks about it being an alarm, an alarm in the body. And the idea of if you're able to, or when you're able to, yeah, befriending it, you know, noticing it saying, Hey, this is a sign. This is a signal. My body is giving off because something is not sitting well. It's often in the mind, which scares us because we get these intrusive thoughts or overwhelming thoughts. And then we really feel out of control because we can't really control what thoughts come into our mind. We can control how we respond to them and what we do with them. So oftentimes going into the body, it's like the on-off switch, but becomes this gauge, this compass that allows me to have some agency over the anxiety that I feel. So if I ask someone, you know, not what makes you anxious, where do you feel your anxiety? There's something to do with it, right? It has a rhythm, a pulse, a tempo. It has its own almost like living, breathing component. And when I interact with that, I can change it. So, you know, as an example, like myself, my anxiety tends to be kind of like um, a beating. It's usually pretty fast paced. It's like having too much coffee. I feel it in my heart, my pulse. And so rather than ignoring it or dismissing it, I will meet it where it is and I will try to move with that pace. So maybe it's a stomping of my foot or it's putting my hand over my heart and like matching the rhythm of that beat. And through my body, I'm listening to it. I'm learning to be with it, but I can also slow down my movement to slow down that sense of overwhelm. And then my mind will follow in line. Hey, it's Whitney Baker with Electric Ideas. I wanted to pop into today's episode to make sure everyone knows about an exciting chance to work with me starting next week. So if you're a mom who's maybe past the toddler phase, coming up for a bit of air and you feel like you lost your spark, maybe you've been wanting to reclaim a sense of self outside your motherhood and work roles, but you're just not quite sure where to start. I got you. My six-week season to shift online program is perfect 
for moms who want to learn how to reconnect with their joy and purpose and feel inspired like they have their own things going on. I think that's often the missing piece is we want to change, but we're not quite sure where to start. And we don't have that community or accountability to propel us forward. I have a limited amount of spots left in my mastermind because it starts next week and it's designed to be intentionally intimate. If you want in, visit myelectricideas.com backslash mastermind backslash for more information and to sign up. You're also welcome to DM me with questions at any time on Instagram. You can find me at at Whitney Woman. I know this is going to serve so many moms. And if it's speaking to you, I hope you claim your spot today. Okay, back to the show. It's fascinating to me. I love thinking about this because I I know what came up for a lot of people is feeling kind of like more at home in your body anchors you to just feeling better about your life. And I just want to talk a little bit more because one thing that stood out for me from your book is that sometimes when people are stuck or maybe women feel like they've tried everything and they can't bridge a change. Tell me if I'm paraphrasing this right, but I feel like in your book, there was an argument that maybe trying to make a change through movement first could bring about change elsewhere. Tell me your thoughts there. Yeah, no, that's a hundred percent. And I think sometimes it's kind of like, really, it can't be that simple. But it it can. So again, going back to that definition of movement being a change in posture, position, or perspective, that suggests that any movement, whether it's blinking your eyes, breathing, following the rhythm of a song, tapping your foot, stretching your fingers, reaching your body out, these are physical movements that mean change is possible anytime, anywhere. It's been said, right? The only constant is change, (laughs) right? So what we're talking about is feeling stuck in our minds. My mind is saying, I don't want to do this. Oh, I don't know how to do this. Oh, I can't do this. I shouldn't do this, blah, 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 right? It's these judgments and assumptions that are keeping our mind constricted. And if we can find ways to unrestrict, right? Or move our bodies because of that mind-body connection, our minds will move with it. It's hard to do because it's a habit and it's ingrained and our mind might not want to move in those ways, but if we keep reinforcing it, it will happen. So whether it's expanding how you're currently moving, a shift in your posture, standing up and taking a stretch break, walking around the room and then sitting back down to do whatever it is you're trying to do. Again, research shows over and over again that these small changes in movement actually impact our minds in the long run and can have really significant changes on our mindset, our mood, et cetera. Some people will challenge that like, well, I tried a yoga class and it didn't work. First of all, it's not a one and done. And it's not any certain type of movement. And actually going to do a prescriptive movement may actually backfire. So again, it's looking at how you're currently moving, challenging the ways you are showing up in your body and looking at ways to expand that. It could be something as simple as breath, right? I'm noticing my breath is really restricted. And if there's some way that I can shift or move my body that accesses a little bit more breath, great. I've done done my work. And now how can I expand my breath, right? Maybe it's taking a deeper breath. Maybe it's trying to breathe into my back or expanding my abdomen. 
again, we need to take ourselves out of this exercise equation. We're not looking at what exercise I can add to be more in my body. Sometimes that has the adverse effect. We're looking at what are small shifts of movement I can make in my body, from my body, that allow me to be more present and that ultimately allow me to move through those places that are making me feel stagnant or stuck. I'm so glad you brought up the exercise piece too, because that is, again, not what this is all about. From a perspective of not necessarily people feeling stuck in general, but just for general whole body health, why do you think it's important to freely move our bodies in different ways? Not necessarily, I like I, you just said, not you have to do five reps of biceps or something like that, but just give us an idea of like why it's so good for us to move our bodies in different ways. Well, I, I, this is like a first draft thought. I was actually thinking about this earlier this morning, but I'm going to throw it out there and see if I can kind of make sense of it. How we connect to our own bodies is often a mirror for how our bodies were connected to in our early years. So if I've been told move this way, don't move that way, restrict this, restrict that, going to a class that still tells me to do those things is not changing the way I relate to my body. When I move from me for me, I'm listening to what I need. I'm meeting needs that maybe never got met to begin with. And that's also why it's uncomfortable, right? Because we don't have the trust there. It's hard to trust what I know or what I think I need because I've always been denied or no one's ever put priority on my needs or what I think I need. No one's even indulged them or validated them. Like, oh, that's interesting. Tell me more, (laughs) right? So exercise for physicality and cardiovascular health, heart health, brain health, like so important, but we don't want to do it at a detriment to our mental health. And so having this positive, whatever that means, connection to your own body and what it's trying to say or what it has to say is oftentimes this like first step into what sometimes people will call reparenting or expressing our inner child, where we're really meeting ourselves in needs that may have been unmet. And we get to meet those needs for ourselves. And that can be through a simple gesture, a twist of my torso, an expansion of my chest, recognizing my own heartbeat, those are such small steps that maybe eventually lead us to that yoga class, right? Or get us to that high and in, high interval, you know, training class. I, ho- I hope that I'm, again, that's kind of first draft thought. I hope that this, that's making sense to the audience. That, that made a lot of sense. I know people are going to connect with this and now having this as kind of a background, it's no surprise you've been dubbed the therapist who moves you. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned in your bio, you work with patients from ages three, am I right? To 107, which is quite a range. Yeah. So Uh, I should say that's been over all my career. It's not currently the work I'm doing. Okay. (laughs) Fair enough. But your, your work has spanned working with bodies, people ages three to 107. Correct. I think that's unique. And so I'm curious, what's your wish for all bodies? Hmm. Well, thank you for saying that, right? Because because uh, even as like clinicians, we think like there's no way someone's working with that that age range, right? We all have to have a niche or a specialty. I always like to add that in there because one, it's true. When I was an intern, I worked with a child as young as three inpatient for suicidal ideation. 
I've worked with, my oldest client was in a nursing home. On my first job, she was 107. So I like to point out the universality of movement and dance for mental health. And I think that coincides with this wish that it is my wish that everyone reaches whatever their potential is simply by looking at the way that they move, that we shouldn't be limiting what we want, how we feel, what we think, because we're stuck in patterns or habits of movement that don't serve us anymore. And we tend to see that more for little, little ones, right? Oh, there's so much potential. Oh, look, he's learning to cartwheel and oh, look, he's, you know, swimming. And we don't see that for the older adults, which is the area that I love to work in. It's where I've spent most of my career and now mostly working with, I'd say 20 to 50 somethings kind of working through the challenges that are life, that is life right now. But that through movement, change is always possible. Therefore, potential is always possible. We can always be achieving or reaching something. And so it's my wish that people see movement as potential. And there's always the ability to achieve something, change something simply by looking at the way that we move, regardless of our limitations, whether it's cognitive or physical. I was rooting for you. I found it very touching in your book when you, over the course of your career, you you mentioned going into nursing homes Mm -hmm. and how eager staff was to race up to you before you kind of introduced yourself and argue for the limitations of the people you'd been working with. And I just found some of those examples of how you handled that really touching. Would you be comfortable sharing one or anything that comes to mind? Oh yeah. Well, I'm like one, gosh, that there's so many examples. Like I lost count, right. Of how many times that would happen because there is this stigma, right. That our physicality uh, declines as we age. And uh, not to say that that's not true. Our bodies do change as we age. We don't live forever, right? Some people transcend that and their bodies can look like a 20 year old when you're, you know, in your late sixties, but typically there is a decline, but The fact that the culture in most of our nursing facilities, especially, I can only speak for the United States, is that we don't move. There's a, they spend, not to throw anybody under the bus, but they spend lots of money to provide all of the technological benefits, right? Like big TV screens and built in, you know, speakers and music. Music's great, but only sitting in front of a TV screen entertaining older adults is not helping their cognition or their physical abilities. So it would always break me a little bit when I would come in, I barely introduced myself, if at all. And it was always like, these people are sleeping. This person can't move this. This person's out of their mind, this, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I was like, whoa, I don't want those judgments clouding my judgment. I don't want to come in and be controlled or contained as to what I want to do with these clients based off of what I've heard you think isn't possible. And so I would just kindly like, okay, thank you. (laughs) Right. Like kind of nod my head and internally I'm like rolling my eyes like, Oh God, not again. But I don't, I mean, one example, it's just over and over again, the example of coming in, doing exactly what I would do each time, meeting the clients where they are, inviting them into any movement possible, and just seeing the change happen. The client that I was told hasn't stood up or walked for months, all of a sudden has this need to stand up and partner dance with me. And I wouldn't have known any different, except that you look at the staff members and they're like, 
jaw dropping to the floor. Mr. Smith hasn't done this in years. I didn't think it was possible. And it's like, well, that's the difference between structural and mental. If he physically cannot stand up because he's too weak, right? Or he's paralyzed, that's different than limiting his mental, emotional ability to stand up and connect with someone. And I do want to say that we always do it in the safest way possible. You know, I'm not going to pull someone up out of their chair knowing that they could fall and break something. Accidents do happen, but we want to be smart with the decisions that we're making, right? So I've definitely had times where you could see a client wanted to stand up and we're like, okay, I, you know, let me come over and dance with you in your chair, right? And that makes them just as happy. But for the clients that stand up, like I remember one gentleman in particular, he's, he's long past, but uh, or long gone since this group. I mean, it came to the point where like, he didn't have any cognitive short-term memory or was, you know, very limited. But when he saw me walk onto that mill view, he immediately started dancing. And it got to the point where he was kind of like dancing down the hallways. You know, he was a pacer, but it came, it, it turned from pacing with aggravation and anxiety to kind of like coasting and dancing down the hallways, interacting with the staff dancing with his wife. That's different. That is, again, this potential, right, for a better quality of life, even if just for a few minutes in the day. And you do have some deep work. I know that was a focus. I don't think that's your, you know, focus now, but I just think it's fascinating that you spent so much time doing deep work with dementia patients. Is there anything else that you want to add just about your your wisdom or your learnings about the power of movement of movement to kind of unlock cognitive ability, whether in dementia patients or in anybody. Yeah. Well, one, I will say it is still such a deep passion of mine to work with individuals, older adults in, in general, but you know, particularly people with dementia or Alzheimer's. Unfortunately, it was COVID that really changed uh now, now for the better. I mean, in terms of like my practice, but a lot of the groups I was doing shut down. Virtual is really hard with individuals, obviously, that, well, one, didn't come from a generation of using technology the way we do now, but to lack the focus or attention or the, the cognitive abilities to engage with technology. So it's still something I'm so passionate about. I love going to memory cafes and, and providing some movements for mental health with my older adults. But the key is that movement can be, right, the one missing piece that actually unlocks the potential to connect, to say what I need, to smile, to have a quality of life. And the arts in general, expressive arts, I think are a wonderful way to make that happen. You know, I I dedicated my book to the clients that taught me that just because you can't speak doesn't mean you don't have anything to say. And that oftentimes when we can't speak those words is when we have the most that needs to be said. So, you know, if we're seeing someone as unreachable, based off of our needs to communicate or our assumptions on what communication should look like. That's when it's time to bring in a specialist who can help access the communication that seems unavailable. I have a colleague by the name of Donna Newman-Bluskeen who I, I reference in my book. And I, I love when she says that what we see as behaviors are unmet expressive needs, whether it's in a three-year-old or it's in that 107-year-old. We see them as behaviors from a psychology standpoint, from a um, mental health standpoint, and we medicate them. When in reality, a lot of those behaviors are unmet needs 
And it's our job to kind of become the, de- the, the detectives and figure out how can I meet that need. And if it's not through verbal communication, then who can I bring in to help support and bridge that portal so that communication is possible, right? Whether it's a child on the autistic spectrum, an adult living with dementia, traumatic brain injury, right? Someone who's been nonverbal or mute their whole life. The language is such a small percentage of our communication. Why are we limiting ourselves from expressing? Absolutely. Okay. We're coming up against time. And I know one of the things that was fun was in your body aware book, you intersperse these little body aware breaks that mm-hmm. people could try. And we know anyone who's stayed with us for this awesome conversation knows that you're an advocate and I am too, for, you know, just letting movement be fun and moving our body in ways that maybe don't feel prescriptive or forced or shoulds or heavy. Mm. And I always make sure that my listenership can just have something that they can try on for size. And I was wondering if you could explain the paintbrush because I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to, it's just, it's silly, but I'm going to like lock my door or I'm going to try it with my kids. I just think it's fun. And so what is the, sorry if I'm not saying the right title, but I'm like, okay, the body paintbrush is what's coming to mind for me. (laughs) No, no, no. Well, I mean, really there isn't a correct title. Something I learned in graduate school, I've seen it, you know, done in so many different somatic circles and uh, with different practitioners. So it's, it's certainly not something I created, but it's something that resonates so deeply for me. And I use it with my clients. So the idea is that either, well, I'll use it in, in these terms. So to imagine that the space in front of you is paint and your body is the canvas, right? And you want to get as much paint on your canvas as possible. And so this allows us to move into space in all of these weird, crazy, different, unusual ways than maybe we would normally move our body, right? But then we can also do the opposite. And once our body is, quote, covered in paint, we can use the space in front of us as a canvas or the floor as this metaphorical canvas. And we can try to cover that space with as much paint as possible. So this is when you have your kids like rolling on the ground, you know, can you get your earlobe? What about behind your ear? What about the spaces in between your toes and your fingers? Ideally not using our hands to paint our bodies. Some of these spaces are near impossible to actually get to but it's the creativity. It's the imagination that we're going for and the openness to create a more robust movement vocabulary, right? I start moving in a way that I'm like, my God, I didn't even know I could move this way. And if I have emotions stored in my body, the more I move different parts of my body, the, the greater access I have to these emotions. So not that we want to go that deep. We're just thinking of it as like a fun exercise, but yeah, try it and and see what it's like to paint your body or again, to like paint this metaphorical canvas. So fun. Thank you for sharing that. I always end my interviews in the same way. And that is what's one question women should be asking themselves more. I'm going to go with uh, how I start the book actually is how am I moving today? So Maybe it's not specific to women. I think everybody should be asking themselves this question. But yeah, we need to be asking ourselves, how am I moving? Am I moving? How have I moved? Am I moving for me? Am I moving for someone else? And also be aware of the judgments that I place on movement, right? I moved well. I'm moving poorly. 
this body part's bad, this body part's good. Take inventory, notice how often and how you're engaging in movement, especially if you're feeling challenged or taxed emotionally. Dance movement therapy is new to me. I think it's fascinating. I really enjoyed learning from your book and I know my audience will want more, more. So tell us where we can find you. <laughs> well, if anybody wants to connect, my website, ericahornball.com is probably the best way to reach me um, through email or there's lots of different resources that I try to make available. Social media, I tend to be most active on Instagram. My handle is at the therapist who moves you. Yeah, I, I just kind of share little tidbits about mind-body connection and things that inspire me. So people are you know, free to message me there. And uh, certainly if it's an international crowd, I welcome that. If it's local, just reach out to me and we could even meet in person. Wonderful. Erica, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Have a great day. I'm so glad you joined me today. If you're looking for more, feel free to connect with me on Instagram at, at @whitneywoman. And if you enjoyed the show, I invite you to support me by leaving a review or sharing it with a friend. Hope you have an inspired day.